Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. I always want to break into song when we do this. It's because of the intro song. Ah, oh, that intro song. So <laughs> epic. I hope you enjoyed that, listeners. When I first heard it, I was like, Mel, you just found the most perfect song ever. Yeah. Oh, hi, B. Hi, Mel. Hi. Mm. We're doing episode 11 today, and it's this is a bit of a piggyback off episode 10 because we couldn't fit everything else into episode 10. We talked about vaginal exams and cervixes for an entire hour. So here we are kind of piggybacking off that and talking about the labor process and labor progress, but in a rebellious way. Yeah. And in a succinct way, being succinct is not my strength, but it is going to be today. Let's do this. Well, because what everybody doesn't know is that when we record a podcast, it's about two hours long and I very carefully, painstakingly edit it down Mm. to one hour and give you the best bits. Mm. So what we're going to try and do is make it all the best. And I never listened to it because if I knew that my bits were being cut out, I'd be deeply saddened. I I can't meet out to be. I get cut out just as much. and I I I know, I know, but it's not about you. It's about me. All right, succinct. Let's do it. Okay, Okay, succinct. Okay. So before we start, we're talking about labor progress and the labor process, but I just have to say that labor does not unfold in a way that the textbooks or a hospital says. So first up, all that stuff is not how it happens. So this knowledge about labor and birth that me and B are about to bring you is it's it's rebellious because it's different and the knowledge about labor and birth is distorted by medicine. And the medical way of managing birth labels and puts boundaries on birth because they wanted to medicalize it. So today we're drawing from research, actual scientific evidence about how labor progresses and also what we've observed watching births at home that aren't interrupted by moving into the hospital and having unnecessary interventions. It's only rebellious right now in this given point of time, right? You know, and if you think about birth as a physiological event, well, what's a physiological event? Because we don't normally use that word outside of medicine, right? What's physiological? Well, weaning's physiological, breathing's physiological, pooing's physiological. I didn't read a textbook on how to poo. I didn't read a textbook or check myself off when I wee. So to really, you know, to really undo, because what what people who believe that it needs to go by a textbook, they've been conditioned to believe that. That is a belief system that they hold. It's not aligned with the truth, which is physiological. And the way your body does something is going to be very different to the way my body does something. We're not all the same. We're all very different. And so just like we are made differently physically, physiologically, we perform differently too. So really understanding physiological will help you to start to undo these or change your belief system on what birth looks like. Because we've been conditioned, you know, the language we use around birth really plays into these belief systems and what we tell our friends around our births and what we talk about as midwives and doctors 
then filters into the community and comes up with this belief that labor and birth is meant to go this way and it's meant to look that way. Now, you and I know what physiological birth looks like, but I've cared for the same woman over and over again. I've been at her second and third births and they never that woman's never birthed the same each time. I mean, I've had two births, you've had two births. I had a 12-hour labor, then a one-hour labor. Tell me what where that would fit in the textbook. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. So understanding physiological is really important here to then see what has happened to birth and how it got put in a textbook in the first place. Yes. And so physiological means just the normal functioning of your a normal function of your body. So if you look at birth from without a fear perspective or a medical perspective, we're all just saying birth's just a normal part of what our body can do. Whereas when it got medicalized, it got defined and broken up and like this mechanic, some kind of mechanical process that follows a linear step-by-step process to get to having a baby. So if we look at what the textbook says about- Which is, I've got to interrupt you there, Mel, that is medicine. Yes. Right? So step-by-step approaches are how we handle pathophysiological events, so sickness and disease, and we want those because they keep us safe when we're unwell. So that's what's been applied to birth to help us in the medical world understand it and manage it. And what we say is birth doesn't need to be managed, it needs to be observed, and then then if something happens that needs to be managed, then we manage it. But what often happens is birth is managed from the start, it's not just observed. And when you observe birth, you learn a heck of a lot. Well, and I think with physiological labour too, the midwife and care provider needs to manage themselves so that they don't do anything unnecessarily. And the place for intervention is when that something goes wrong. We There's an amazing ability to correct that with medicine or medical procedures. But if that's, you don't need to treat a labor or manage a labor that's unfolding physiologically. So if we have a look at what medicine says labor should look like, and this is what we're told in our training as midwives, and then it's reinforced in the workplace. So I don't, I don't actually believe that physiolog- the physiological process of how labor unfolds is even shared with student midwives either at university. So there's no policy on it in the hospital system either. Like there's no policy on physiological labor and how to observe it. So a textbook or medicine would have labor broken up into three stages. So there's the first stage of labor. And that involves regular uterine, like contractions of the uterus and also dilation of the cervix. So we've already met a problem here because they've started defining the first stage of labor in relation to what the cervix is doing. So if you heard last week's episode on VEs, diagnosing the first stage of labor relies on vaginal examinations. And then also they're only allowing the first stage of labor to be defined by effective contractions that are creating dilation. So if a woman's getting contractions and potentially in the earlier stages of labor, but there's been no change in her cervix, she would be told you are not in labor. But the problem is, if she is in labor, because she's not in not labor, because she's contracting. So then all of a sudden the woman's having this experience of labor and she's been told you are not in labor, but she's not in normal life either in her experience. Women's experience of labor immediately from the get-go is different to what medicine is told, is telling them is normal or any kind of productive labor. So we're already at the first hurdle and I've only said the first sentence B. So then 
medicine likes to break down this first stage of labor into like what we call the latent phase or early labor phase, then active labor, which again, you know, I don't really like the terms how they've broken it up. But anyway, active labor, again, diagnosing active labor relies on doing a vaginal exam. So previously, when I first started my training, Women were told they were in active labor. I'm doing speech marks again. If they were four centimeters or more dilated in their cervix, if they were less than that, they were sent home and told you're in early labor, go home, come back when labor's stronger. So again, like just this total dismissal of the early parts of labor. Bed management issue. Like we said last week, this is all bed management issues. Because if a woman's presenting in earlier stages of labor, what she's saying is I need support, I need help. I need to be cared for. I'm scared. I'm worried. You and I go, well, yes, send her home so that she, because we know the sooner you present to hospital in your labor, the earlier you present to hospital in labor, the more interventions you are likely to receive. So you and I are like, yeah, great, send her home. And you, and she might get that in a visit, but you know what she's saying is, I feel like I'm in labor and I need something here. And then get sent home saying you're actually not like your whole experience of this. We we can't help you with early and that. Dismissal is often what holds charge for people afterwards in the birth. And it can really cause ripple effects in that person's labor because then they're thinking, well, I'm not in labor. So how long is it going to be? And, you know, what's going to happen next? And so what we're getting is the, you know, the prefrontal cortex where we do all our thinking is now dominating rather than that beautiful middle brain that needs to be dominating in labor. What we get is adrenaline. What happens then is oxytocin decreases. What happens then? The body picks up. Hmm, it's not really safe to have a baby today. And it draws the process out. And so this kind of stuff is, it really has a huge flow on effect. The other thing I want to say is we need to have a button for when we do the speech marks, like a sound effect. We need to have a sound effect so everyone knows we're speech marking because we do it at every single episode. No, we don't believe in a lot of these things. Like these things that I'm telling you now is a summary of what well, the textbook will tell you. So and, the, and the language we're using isn't language you and I would use in normal in the care we provide, because what you're saying here is labor needs to be diagnosed simply by what the cervix is doing. And so the medical definition of labor is purely based on the cervix, whereas you and I know the definition of labor is based on many things from the woman and how she's feeling to the noises she's making to the what the uterus is doing to the position of the baby. It used to drive me batty in working in hospitals where they'd say there's been no progress, but you've had a baby that's rotated from a position that wasn't doing much to the cervix, you know, like a posterior or a transverse. And, you know, posterior is a very nice variation of normal too. I really want to put that in there and we'll do a big uh, episode on that. But, you know, if a baby rotates from the side to all the way at the front, that's huge progress for me. That's incredible. But all the textbook sees and all the policies in the hospital see are cervical dilatation, exactly. which is heartbreaking because it really messes, A, with physiological labour, it increases intervention, but it also changes the person's experience and their their memories and or their experience of their labour. And what else it does is it de-skills midwives to know anything about labour without doing vaginal exams. And so what happens is, is that midwives are, are kind of expected to diagnose all the different stages of labor for the medical records and to manage each woman's labor and to know what to do next because everything is based on how far her cervix is dilated. And so midwives then don't hone the skills that that are possible. And we will talk about how to diagnose, if we're going to use that word diagnose, labor progress using 
other different techniques other than putting your fingers into women's vaginas every two to four hours. And this is a huge maternity system issue because really what we're doing is we're raising obstetric nurses. We're not raising midwives in the system because really if you are working on an understaffed birth suite and all you're doing is inductions and, you know, you're looking after two or three women in labour, you don't get to sit and observe. And if you're not working with a mentor, midwifery mentor that really understands physiological labour, you don't get to learn that. And I just want to send a lot of love to midwives out there because there's not a lot of time to do true midwifery anymore because the system isn't allowing for it. So lots of love to to, to our colleagues out there because I know it's hot. Yeah. So once women move from being in the latent slash early labor phase, then medicine says that they move into active labor. And now active labor is where medicine goes, well, okay, this is our jurisdiction. We have not brought early labor or latent labor into the jurisdiction of medicine. So as soon as women approach the hospital in early labor, there's a big sign on the door. No, no. We don't do early labor. That's your jurisdiction. We're we're going to keep giving that to women. Don't be scared of early labor. But the minute you're in active labor, you're in danger and you need to come to hospital and that's our jurisdiction. We can look after you in active labor. But before that, go home, right? That's the weirdness of defining labor stages is they've also yeah, defined the jurisdiction. But if women present more than once, or if the place is quiet, early labor can be medically managed too. So women will be given sleeping tablets. They'll be given panadine fort often. So the, the good old panadine fort and tamaz and sent home with that. Sent home. So women get sedated and silenced. Yeah. Early yeah. And really what they're saying at that time is I need support. And so what we give them is sleeping tablets and pain relief. And so that early labor stage, especially if it is long for some people, can be a number of presentations and then what that can look like is early labor being managed with intervention and so if you become a nuisance to the system then all of a sudden you get admitted that sounds awful i hope everyone took that the way i meant it speech marks yeah so whilst we try and send you home in that time sometimes what happens is you start your labor gets medically managed well and that's what happens is the hospital says look we don't do we don't do early labor here so if you need us during early labor we will send you home with medication so you don't come back anytime soon or if you want to be here for early labor management we will manage you we will drag you into active labor because that's our jurisdiction so you'll either get augmented with syntocinone like an induction or like B said water's broken, they won't just let you sit there in early labour and be cared for because that's not in the medical jurisdiction or the boundaries of what hospital will offer. And if you are, because sometimes sometimes it happens, mm-hmm. you'll be put into an assessment space. So it's not that you don't go into the birth space often. So bigger hospitals will have birth suites. They'll also have assessment wards, maternity assessment units. So you might be there. It might not be a single room. Often you'll have to share the room. Often it won't have the things in it that that you would want a birthing space to have in it, like a fit ball, a bath, a nice shower. It might, it's just basically a really stock standard small hospital room. Um, and so it doesn't have the tools that you may want to utilize. I mean, we try and give a very generalized what can happen, but there's always unique situations too. Although this is not the topic for today, this is a really good reason to prepare your support people to support you during early labor. 
because that most of it's done at home. And so you only present to the hospital when you're considered to be in, again, speech marks, active labor. And get a doula, have a doula at home. You're going to hear me say that every episode. If you don't have midwifery continuity of care, you're not birthing at home, you're birthing in the system. Everyone, need, everybody needs a doula. Don't oh, cut no. that bit out because that was epic. <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> Can I say too that doulas fill gaps for women that haven't already been met? So if you've got a super involved and confident partner who's on board or a friend who's given birth in the way that you would want to be supported and all that kind of stuff, you can replace the work of a doula with super keen, prepared support people who have done it before and who are on board. So I've seen that happen and the guys are, you know, the partners are just the biggest advocates for the women. But certainly if you think there's a gap in your support network, then a doula is the person who's going to advocate for you, particularly in that early labor phase and and hold you and help you stay at home and hold you in that space before it's time to go to hospital. So then shout out to all the men who are listening to us because we're hearing from you. We love that you're listening to us. I just did a birth prep and shout out to Mick. His name was, he's like, I've just, I've just been listening to your podcast. We, I just blows my mind. Thank you for being here too. I love that you're here. Yeah. So if we start talking about then you're, you're done with early labor, you feel like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm coming into labor of what they would call active labor again speech marks i don't use any of these words these are textbook words before it used to be if you arrived in hospital they do a vaginal exam and if you are more than four centimeters that's it you're admitted you're on the books you have a folder your labor your active labor has officially started but that was based on really old research and newer research now by Zhang. And again, all of these research papers will be in the folder that you get access to if you are on the Great Birth Rebellion podcast mailing list. So get on that at www.melaniethemidwife.com. I'm going to say it every episode because everybody's looking for the mailing list. So the new research suggests that women are actually not in active labor and so therefore not of the medical jurisdiction until they are five to six centimeters dilated. And so this is catching on at hospitals I found they're kind of happy that women are coming in later more in advanced labor and so if you're not using vaginal exams as a way of diagnosing where women are up to in labor a very very basic and you know blanket rule that it doesn't apply to everybody But when women ask me, how do I know that things are progressing? I'll often say, you know, you can gather a lot by the pattern of contractions. Not always because this deviates wildly, but very generally, if your contractions have a regular pattern, so they're happening at regular intervals. So when you count contractions, if you want to count contractions, you'd count from the beginning of a contraction and then the gap is you count to the beginning of the next contraction. So if somebody rings me and says, oh, they're six minutes apart, that's because they've counted from the beginning of a contraction to the beginning of the next. Then if they're regular, so if you're counting them for like half an hour to an hour and they're every four minutes regularly, then you know you're probably in a pattern of labor that's going to progress on to full dilation 
and to you having your baby, it's probably not going to stop and start from that point. Again, super generalized. And then what will happen is once you're in a regular pattern, the contractions of active labor, again, saying that hesitantly, are usually a minute or more. So if your contractions are lasting less than a minute, it's possible that you're still in early labor. And if they're more than that, then you're probably in labor that's going to progress on. And then they will get periodically closer together and the contractions become longer, which gives you less of a gap between contractions of rest. And I realize that's super base. That's a, that's not what happens to everybody. I've been at births where a woman has had a contraction every 10 minutes and then had her baby. Yeah. We've all been at those births where, you know, and you're always like, what's going to happen with second stage? And it does. <laughs> or they just push it out in one contraction. But yeah, for some people, their physiological labor looks like 10 minute contractions or five minute contractions. I need to get on my high horse and have a rant here. Put the apps down. Yes. Put, just delete them off your phone. Your labor does not need a time management app. Guess what? We're super intelligent. We as humans for 60,000 years have learned to observe. We can see when things get closer together. We can see when things last longer. It is not your job as a laboring person to project manage your labor. Get in it, be with it, connect with it, but don't project manage it. That really messes you up because if you're trying to time your contractions, guess what brain you're in? Ding, 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 prefrontal cortex. Guess what that doesn't allow you to do? Ding, 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 surrender. So if you're trying to control it and time it, it doesn't work. Now I hear you saying, but B, they told me to come in when my contractions were two to three minutes apart. Well, here's the thing. You're going to know when they get closer together. You're going to know when they're stronger. You're going to know when you really want to go to the hospital because you're going to think it. If your partner or support people want to project manage, that's cool, but you don't have to do it from the start. You don't have to time your contractions when they're 10 minutes apart. These people who are caring for you are intelligent. They're able to go, wow, yeah, it's really heightened up here. Wow, she's starting to not talk to you anymore. She's starting to give me some daggers. She's squeezing my hand a lot more. She's really stomping her feet. Hmm. I think these contractions are close together. It needs to be less about time and more about how you're feeling. Go to the hospital when it feels like you need to go to the hospital. We're also scared that these babies are going to drop out in the car on the way there. Like there's just, there's so much panic and stress around when to get to the hospital. And it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah. Okay. I'm down. I'm off my high horse. Right. I'll mute myself. And so I think what B's trying to say is when you're trying to decide what to do next, should I go to the hospital or is it time to ring my midwife? Think about what you need, not where you're up to. Pete, when my clients ask me, oh my gosh, when should I call you? I'm like, well, that is completely up to you because you need to decide when you think you need me. There are some clients who need me in early labor and there are some clients who didn't feel like they needed me and then they felt like they needed to push and still didn't feel like they needed me. It's such a beautiful way to put it. It's what you need. Right. And so it's less about how how dilated your cervix is and more about what do you need. Then that's what matters in terms of where you're up to in your labor. Are your needs being met? So then when the textbook talks about first stage, we've already talked about early labor, which is technically textbook anywhere from one to five or six centimeters, then active labor 
goes from five or six centimeters to being fully dilated. And then there's this stage, this phase called transition. It's actually called effing transition. Women typically get to transition. You can be anywhere with your cervix, but typically it you're getting close to pushing out your baby if you're feeling transitional. Sometimes, you know, when I was working in hospital, they used to say, you know, women are transitional between nine and 10 centimeters or so, or at the time where you're fully dilated, but not yet pushing. Now this transitional phase if I could talk a little bit hormonally, is in hospital characterized by women kind of losing the plot. Again, I don't, that's not to say insultingly, but your behavior changes from what you were doing previously. Women start to panic a little, they can. The reason they do that is that at in that time of transition, your body is winding up to get ready to give birth to your baby. So you need an injection of adrenaline because you need to be a little bit more alert And you need to power up to prepare for what's about to happen. That's what your body's doing. But as people, we recognize an adrenaline shot in a time that's usually fearful or stressful in our lives. And so when we feel the adrenaline taking over, women can sometimes start to panic and wonder what's going on and why are they feeling frightened and why are they feeling frazzled. But if women understand that actually this adrenaline is purposeful in this moment because Adrenaline gives us strength and capability and power. So that's part of it as well. And this power is what your body is going to use to bring your baby out and also to immediately care for your baby with full presence and with hypervigilance. So sometimes- Which is why if you've ever had a baby, everyone in the house falls asleep and you're there going, if you've ever had a baby physiologically and you've truly experienced all the hormones to their complete power, this is why you cannot sleep. After I had my baby, you know, Mick and Banjo were asleep on the bed and I was like, now what do I do? Can people come over and see me? Because this is boring. Like I just, yeah. and then the second one, it was exactly the same. Like it's, that is why you're so crisp. Exactly. Because the baby needs care now and you you've got to look after it so that's transition but there is a there's a stage of transition that's not recognized in textbooks or in hospitals or it is recognized and it's not welcome so it's called the rest and be thankful stage and honestly in a physiological birth I probably see the rest and be thankful stage 60 or 70 percent of the time women will be in good strong labor that I think is progressing on to a baby being born And then suddenly they fall asleep in the pool or something, or they lie on their side and start snoring. And it's like there's no contractions for half an hour, an hour, sometimes even longer. Now, if that's seen in the hospital and all of a sudden your contractions stop and your body shuts down, they consider that to be a stall in the labor process that needs to be accelerated and augmented with oxytocin or the artificial oxytocin, which is syntocin or pitocin in America. So if you if women stop contracting in hospital, that's seen as divergent and, un, and not normal, and they will likely try and give you an induction at that point. But what that is, if you observe it from a position of not interrupting things, that's the rest and be thankful stage. That's the body going, right, we've done labor. We're nearly fully dilated or are fully dilated. And we need to get ready to push this baby baby out, power down, gather energy. We're getting ready to do this. And And I would say the body's not even thinking about full dilatation. No, no, no. So yeah, it's not thinking about the cervix. No, it's not thinking about, it's not, it's just thinking it's doing its thing, right? So if so this is a message to anybody 
if you're laboring and you're going on and on and then all of a sudden you feel like falling asleep or you feel just fall asleep. Don't think to yourself, oh my gosh, I feel so sleepy. What do I do? Just fall asleep. Let your body go to sleep. And if you're a midwife looking after that woman, do not under any circumstances, wake that woman up. Don't wake her up to do her blood pressure. Don't wake her up because it's time for her next vaginal exam. Don't wake her up to see if she's okay. She's okay. Her body is doing a very, very important thing. Don't interrupt. Okay, full stop, rant over. Yeah, but they're going to have to, right? Because that's what the policies are. And so this is part of really, you know, because it's very easy for us to sit on a podcast and say, don't do it. But the reality is observations are based on time. Because are you willing, because what will generally happen in that time is you won't be left to rest. You will be seen as your labor isn't progressing and you will interpret that as a bad thing. The only thing that needs intervention in labor and birth is when you or your baby are unwell. So if you your baby is well and you are sleeping, this isn't a lay this isn't something that needs to be managed in labor this is not pathophysiological this is a bed management issue again this is a time management issue so having this knowledge and going to birth and going i'm not willing to accept for my labor to be sped up with drugs or interventions like a breaking of waters because this is often when the waters get broken so knowing that this is a really critical point of your labor where you may be offered unnecessary intervention and so you may want to go into your birth saying i'm not willing for that unless there is is actually a real need to get this baby out. Do you want intervention at this really crucial transformative part of your labor? Or do you want to be respected and and left? And this is when women wake from this restful period. This is when they're like, I need to get to the hospital, right? And this is why we say try and stay home as long as you can. Come to us when you're there because you've really protected your physiological labor in that state. Midwives can also advocate for women at this time. So if somebody's like, have you done that woman's blood pressure yet? It's okay to say she's actually sleeping. I'm not going to wake her up. And then to also, and then educate their colleagues about she's probably resting and being thankful. And let's allow that. Let's give her some space to do that. She doesn't need her blood pressure done this hour. It could be done next hour. And even more importantly like that than that, bring this to meetings, bring this to policy development. Let's start talking about it. We want to be able to advocate in that time and speak up and have conversations before you need to. Because if that conversation's already been there and that thought maybe, like we've talked about this a couple of episodes ago, just like mention it, right? Then mention it again. You plant the seed and then by the time you need the fruit, the tree's grown. Like have these conversations before you need to advocate. That was a really good analogy, I'm that just going to say. Beautiful. It was beautiful. I know. I'm really proud. Hey, what I want to talk about is, and I and I don't know if you've done the research, so we may cut this bit out. But how the stages of labor actually got defined to get into textbooks was actually by a very very small study on one population of women, and it was what was Friedman's, wasn't it? I've got, that's my very next section B. We've got a whole discussion about. I'm so in tune with you that I know know what we're going to. So should we go there now or have we ranted enough about what we needed to? We, it was, it's literally after transition is a note saying talk about Friedman. Epic. So So do we need to say anything more about transition? Do we need to say, I don't think transition is such a sacred time. It is labor's way of saying, hey, you're about to be a mum. Mm-hmm. Let's pause. So let's just pause. And, you know, it's a real, it's like a, it's this time where you need to be nourished. 
You need to be nourished before you're about to do the nourishing. It needs to be honoured and respected and seen as sacred. It doesn't need to be tampered with. So take home rules. Never wake a sleeping baby and never wake a sleeping labouring woman. Like, if you live life by those two rules, you'd probably be fine. <laughs> Mel and B's rules for life. We, I could add a lot more to those. Don't yeah. use apps. Don't use, oh, don't use <laughs> Unless it's the core and floor one and you're doing your exercises, please use that one. Use that, but not in labour. And use apps to listen to our podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's always exceptions to the rules. Right, exactly. Just like labour. So that's the first stage. I feel like we talked about the first stage. So first stage ends in, in medical terms, ends when you're fully dilated. But how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we were defining labour in stages and progress and cervical dilation? I will tell you, B, you know I will. In... Around the 1950s, but uh, there's some research that was done in 1969 by a fella named Friedman, and he said that... Good year, that one. I just had to do it. Oh, it's happening. Okay. Oh. 69. Played my first real sex string. Can I just say that song, I thought it was, I played my first real sex game. (gasps) Mm. did (laughs) And he was just talking about his guitar. Your mind is in the gutter. It's not, it went with the year, it went with the song. Well, okay. Friedman was also rocking out, doing some research, bringing it back in 1969, said that normal dilation, when he plotted this, and by the way, did you know Friedman, when he did his research, it was based on rectal exams on women to detect vaginal the cervical dilation. It wasn't vaginal exams. It was rectal. So anyway, fun fact. So he said that dilation occurs at 1.2 to 1.5 centimetres per hour. And that is what practitioners have been using to define the normal progress of labour for a long time now. But thank goodness for Zhang, Zhang et al. and their research, which again will go in the folder for the mailing list. So Zhang challenged this idea of 1.2 to 1.5 centimetres per hour and concluded that, and, and the paper that I'm referring to is called Contemporary Patterns of Spontaneous Labour with Normal Neonatal Outcomes. So Zhang looked at labours where the baby and women were well at the end. So we're not looking at labours that were like, oh my gosh, we let it go on forever and then now something happened to the baby. So we're looking at well babies that had good outcomes. And what Zhang said was that labour may take more than six hours to progress from four to five centimetres and then more than three hours to progress from five to six centimetres. Now that is a huge difference. So with Friedman saying 1.2 to 1.5 centimetres per hour from active labour, from four centimetres, this is what Friedman said, from four centimetres, women should progress at 1.2 to 1.5 centimetres per hour. What Zhang is saying and Zhang defines active labor as five to six centimeters. What Zhang had found is that it can take more than six hours, so probably four times longer than what Friedman said, to go one centimeter, so four to five centimeters, and then more than three hours to go from five to six centimeters. So if we 
apply the upper limits of what Zhang observed. So six plus three is nine. Good math. Nine hours to go from four to six centimeters is considered normal from Zhang's research. Well, there's a few problems with it. So there were all hospital births, obviously. The problem was all the women started labor spontaneously. So none of them started being induced. But then they still included in the data women who had ended up having an epidural and women who ended up being augmented with syntocinon or an artificial oxytocin. So this lumped together, even women who were augmented in their labor were included in a study that was supposed to try and plot reasonable progress like that we could expect. Yeah, but what they've done is they've made it generalizable, right? Exactly. To hospital birth. Because what they've done is they've shown what happens in hospital, which is people accept epidurals or their labor is augmented. So what they've done is they've made the data able to be more generalized to the overall population. Because now we still don't understand what normal labor does. Bang. That is the key. We have zero research on physiological labor we do not um, progress, progress. I'm putting in inverted commas because why do we need it? This is the thing, right? Why do we need time limits? Why does it matter if the person and baby are well? The fact is it only matters in a system because what what it comes down to is staffing. People who are caring for you and their capability and their capacity and the space for it. It actually, if everyone is well and we are just allowing something to occur that is physiologically part of us to occur, it's meant to occur, then there is no concern until there is one and then we manage it. So why does the time matter, matter? Well, the time matters because there's another medical term called labor dystocia, which is the definition given to labor that is for somehow some reason stalled or stuck. And then also it's called failure to progress, which is an awful, awful term because you haven't failed. It's just stalled. But in this case, when this happens, we see pathophysiological events arise, Yes, right? In true labor dystocia, you see either pathophysiological pain, so the laboring person experiences pain that is different to regular and normal physiological contractions. They get a temperature. The baby's heart rate starts to change. There is no normal, uh, it's weird because you want to, I want to use the word progression, but you, it's, you don't see labor unfold as it would physiologically unfold. We see blood in urine. We see all these things that tell us hey yeah something needs to be managed here because labor has stored and we, we do see that we see babies that you know we call it deep transverse arrest where they're really low in that pelvis they're side on and they're they they don't rotate right and then we see the laboring person gets a temperature baby's heart rate drops down blood in the urine we see things like that so that's when the person or the baby and or the baby become unwell so we manage it And labor dystocia at any point, regardless of where your cervix is, can happen and is diagnosable without a vaginal examination. And I know that because it actually still, labor sometimes does not progress at home either. So there has been times where I've need I've wondered to myself, what is going on? I don't know. It's the first sign, right? Like as a midwife, when you truly know physiological labor, that's the first sign. You're like, hold up. 
what's, what's going on here? That's called relationship-based care. That's true midwifery. That's intuitive care. And, you know, I say it and I say it again, read The Gift of Fear, that the only time we ever really stuff up is when we don't listen to our instincts or the person we're caring for. Because here's the other thing I've noticed a hell of a lot. If I'm thinking it, she's thinking it. Yes. This is where true connection to ourselves is super important and it's incredible skill to have. Yeah. So, yeah, we see it. The woman's not well anymore. She recognizes it. There's always, when you really, when you debrief your birth, those thoughts were there. Whether yeah. they were vocalized or not, they were there. And that's true labor dissociative because guess what? Your body and your baby are communicating, right? right? No, so the body right. knows. It always knows. But that's the obsession with trying to work out how many centimeters women are at and how long has she been there and is this dystocia and do we need to do something to intervene in that process to all of this was based on very very small old research so research from the late 60s um and new research which really doesn't show physiological labor and it does you know it is the the results can be generalized more widely because of the how they've done the study now as a care provider what have you learned because really we should if we're doing something to every single person in labor which is what we're doing with progress of labor we're expecting it from every single person it should be backed by a hell of a lot of research to be able to do what we're doing because what we're doing is interventions. We are changing it based on the research we have. But the research we have is from two studies, one in 1969, one Zhang was 2010, wasn't it? And so not- Zhang's done a lot more research since 2010 okay. as well. But the issue is, is that the majority of the work for a maternity care workforce is still using Friedman's very small old study. So if your care provider or you are still thinking that one to two centimetres is the progress per hour that a woman should be experiencing. It's based off a tiny study done way back in the 1950s and 60s. And I think in America, was it? Or was it UK? Where was it? Oh, I can't remember. It wasn't in Australia and it wasn't with a multi-diverse, it wasn't multicultural, right? This is the other thing that's really important. Like when I worked in the Solomon Islands, I watched two very different cultures or ethnicities, birth, Solomon Islanders and the Gilbertese, so from the Kiribati Islands, because they lived in the Solomons too. And it was phenomenal because Australia is so multicultural. And so this was phenomenal to see because they they, they labored so differently and it, everything about their labors was so different. And so this is what we're doing. Australia is incredibly multicultural, but the, the evidence that we're basing it off isn't. And so a really important thing to do is actually discuss this with your care provider. Hey, what is your belief on how labor should progress? What do you do in these kind of stages? Do you know about transition and the rest and be thankful stage? Do you respect and honor that or do you not? Because you know that was Zhang's research. Because if they don't know yeah. about Zhang's research, they haven't updated their practice in at least 15 years because Zhang started talking about this a long time ago. Yeah. And then say, what is your expectation of my labor and how it will progress? Because knowing what their expectations are is going to guide you on what kind of care they're going to provide you. And if you're not, if you don't align with that and you're not willing to change care providers, because remember you can change care providers up until when you're in birth. And I know lots of you are, and you're contacting us about it, which is wicked. We love that you're being rebellious and doing what you need. But if you're not willing to do that, then you need to have a plan around that right? Am I willing to accept 
their definition of progress of labor and am I willing to accept intervention even if it's not going to feel necessary to me? Or if I'm not, what am I going to do about it? Yes. Super important. And if we talk about this phrase of failure to progress, spit on it, hate it. Spit on it. Ah, Put it away. Lock it up in the freezer. Erase it. So this is how medicine will describe your body. If your body doesn't conform to this rule and expectation that medicine has placed on your labour, they will tell you that you have failed to progress. And it's used to describe the deviance if a woman's cervix doesn't dilate to the expectation of Friedman. Oh, his original research was 1955. It's just come to me. So, so now medicine, now Zane's trying to redefine redefine what labor crop progress is and when have women truly failed to progress. I'm speech mark. So, but what it is, it's not failing to progress. You've not failed. Your practitioner has failed to wait. So that's what I call failure to progress. It's not failure to progress, it's failure to wait. And then if for some reason there is a a complication in your labor where the baby gets stuck or the position is not ideal for the baby to come out, you've experienced some kind of dystocia. No one's failed, but there has been a dysfunction in the process. So we're going to let go, completely get rid of failure to progress. Stop writing it down. Stop putting it in the computer. Stop telling yourself you failed because it's so derogatory anyway please stop using it in the workplace really that's one of our rules if you're going to keep listening to this podcast you're not allowed to use it on any whiteboard do not abbreviate it to ftp no no and if it's not in the computer tick other and write labor dystocia that's how i started being really rebellious in the workplace i just wouldn't accept what the computer the computer says no b says yes write it in the notes instead that's what i want to say about that and we but we still don't know there's no research on how labor normally progresses if you didn't augment it and where that would still be a normal outcome so that's what i want to say about the research on progress so we've we've gotten to ourselves to the end of labor And we're moving on to the next stage. This is the second stage that the textbooks will define in labor. Second stage of labor, the textbook tells you, again, it's based on vaginal exams, that second stage is when your cervix is fully dilated and it ends when the baby is fully born, which is totally bogus too, by the way. Bogus, 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 because... And it ruins us. It ruins us physiologically and it ruins us in postpartum because what it leads to is coach... What it leads to is coach pushing and telling your and us telling you to push your baby out before your body has said it's ready to because your body knows how to push a baby out. We're telling you to do it before it's said it's ready, which leads to trauma emotionally and physically. And, and it leads to fetal distress for your baby. It leads to longer stage of actually pushing and it leads to higher rates of episiotomy. And that was yeah. Nigel Lee's study. And we're doing, I need, like I told Mel, don't even get me, don't even allow me to talk in this stage because we need a whole episode. So I'm going to stop it there, but it's not. Then we just need to get rid of the stages of labor. They serve absolutely no purpose whatsoever. They do not benefit us. I don't even understand why they're there. Why do we need them? Medicine. They're not beneficial. No, medical, it's been medicalized. That's why it's there. And we're going to do a whole episode. It allows us to tick boxes. That's what it does. Yes. It allows us to categorize and tick boxes, yeah. which is not what birth needs. Birth does not need any boxes to be ticked. Yeah. It so this needs- is what the textbook would tell This is what the textbook would tell you. That <laughs> second stage is cervix fully dilated to baby being born. 
But, yeah, of course, it assumes that midwives are sticking their fingers in women's vaginas every two to four hours to determine if you're fully labored, if you're fully dilated. But if we don't do that, and we shouldn't be doing that, offering routine vaginal exams. Because they're not, by evidence, shown to be beneficial in spontaneous physiological labor. Correct. Go back to episode 10. We'll give you all the information about why we shouldn't be doing that. So then... How do you work out when a woman is ready to push out her baby? How do you know that she's exited the stage of labour of cervical dilation and her cervix is fully open and ready to move a baby through and out? I'll tell you how because private midwives are experts at working out where a woman is up to without putting their fingers inside a woman's vagina because we have to have two midwives at a birth. Legally, you have to plan to have a second midwife at your birth. And so we call the second midwife when we think the woman's getting close to having her baby, to when we think there's a birth about to occur. But we don't do routine vaginal examinations. We don't even check and hold your hats, midwives. We don't even check if a woman is fully dilated when she starts bearing down or showing signs of having an urge. Or if we think she's ready, we don't check. We just let them push however they want to push <gasps> so, so badass I know so badass. that so we need to work out other ways how do we know this woman is about to have her baby so I can fulfill the requirement of having a second midwife at the birth we get really really good at it and very and you know occasionally the second midwife misses the birth if the baby's coming sooner but we don't have a choice. That's normally a traffic issue, though. It's not normally because you haven't caught it with Correct. enough time. Or like a distance. So we can vary almost 100% of the time sort of go, yep, there's a baby about to be born. I'm going to call my second midwife. And depending on where that midwife is, determines if she actually gets there in time. So how do we work out full dilation or that a woman is about to have her baby without actually putting your fingers inside her? Can I say my favorite one? Yes. It's where the anus starts winking at you. Yes. Or pouting to give you a anal, good kiss. It's called anal pouting. Mm, so It's my favourite thing. Anal pouting. So if you it just. So is poo because then we know. We always get scared about pooing in labour. It's like don't be scared of the poo. Poo is magical. The poo tells us that guess what comes next? A baby. baby. Because the baby's making way. The poo's got to get out of there so the baby can come through. Basically, the baby comes down through what's in your pelvis called the curve of caris. Okay, as it comes around the curve, it pushes on your bum hole. And so it's basically your sacrum and your tailbone, right? Like it pushes down along that. A little curve. And so if your anus is pouting out and it looks like it's coming out to meet us, we know there's a baby behind there and probably we're about to see it at the opening of your vagina. So if we see anal pouting, but also the woman starts to make sounds, like so we know what sounds, it sound, birth sounds different to labour and pushing out a baby sounds different to labour. If physiologically a woman starts bearing down or feels an uncontrollable urge to do something different to what she's been doing before. And so we know what that sounds like. And you'll only know that if you watch physiological birth. You won't know what that sound is if you're doing what we call coach pushing, which we're going to talk about in another episode. Yeah, the favourite thing I love is the purple line. Purple. There's research, B. I've got it. Yes, so tell me. I love it. So it, there's a purple line. It doesn't happen to for everybody. The research showed that about 70% of women will get a purple line and it can depend. And it's, 
skin color. Skin color. Yeah, because yeah. I've worked a lot with, um, you know, in with Aboriginal women and women with darker skin and it, you just don't see it as Correct. well or at all. Paler skin tends to be a lot more obvious and we call it a purple line. It extends from the anus up to the sort of the nape of the back, up to the, I don't know. And just above the back crack. Above the butt crack. So, yeah. yeah. So there's been some research done on this around, there was a few papers, and again, they'll be in the mailing list folders. In 2010, there was one, and it found vaginal exam accuracy to be less accurate than the purple line. It's amazing. So they looked at 144 women, and they determined, yeah, in this study that 109 women, so 76%, had a purple line. They in this study they did vaginal exams and then also measured the purple line to see if there was a correlation. What they said was that the purple line does exist. And there is what they called a medium positive correlation between the length of the purple line and a woman's cervical dilation, but also the position of the baby's head in the pelvis creating the purple line. So then they've said it's a thing and actually we can, there's a possibility that we can use it to diagnose labour progress and there just needs to be more research on if it can become an objective measurement that we could use as midwives in place of vaginal exams and how acceptable it is to women. The other reason though that I see the purple line so often is that at home women are using active birth positions. So more often I can see their bum than their belly because they're in a forward or standing position. Whereas uh, the predominant position of women in hospital percentage-wise, they're actually on their back or bottom, so you can't even see it. So a lot of the signs that B and I are talking about might not be visible in a hospital birth if a woman is on a medically induced birth position like laying on your back because women will not physiologically get on their back. I want to meet the woman in history who said, it was so comfortable giving birth on my back. That's the position. I remember giving birth to Banjo and just thinking in the moment, how do women do this on their back? Like I literally couldn't do anything but lean forward. The other thing, Mel, and I know you've probably got a few other things you want to talk about here, but you're talking about how we know that a woman's ready to have a baby. But really you and I and so many other midwives out there are very skilled at knowing that labor is physiologically progressing. Labor is chugging along beautifully well before transition. There are things that you and I know and your care providers will know that labour is actually progressing without doing a vaginal examination. There's also things that you will know as a woman. Like I remember being in labour and being like, you know, if you talk to women, they're like, yeah, contractions got closer together. It started getting harder. My mental thoughts started changing. You know, I stopped talking in between contractions. I needed to rest more. You know, there's so much that actually happens that isn't the cervix. Mm. Right. And if we're really skilled at midwifery, we know these things. You're really in tune and really in that in that birth space. Or the women will women will feel it. Feel like baby's much more lower now. I feel like that pressure's building. And some, and I just want to say here that everyone's different, you know, and so many women who are beautifully in the zone but may not be demonstrating labor as we want them to demonstrate it often get palmed off as, well, you're not in labor. 
because you're not making these noises and not doing this and they're not and they're like well it feels a lot stronger I feel like I've progressed and often these women are like eight or nine centimeters and you know they're not even believed that they're in labor because they haven't been observed they haven't um no one's watched that transition that's happened for them some women do literally breathe their babies out some women don't feel it as painful but even uh so when I was a baby researcher when I my very first research project that I was on was the birth position study with Hannah Darlin. And my job was to, so we enrolled all these women in this study because we wanted to watch what women do in in physiological labor. What's their positioning? What do they naturally do? And I won't tell you the details, but I did hide in cupboards and all kinds of things so that I could unobtrusively observe these labors. And it was my job to record the time and every single movement of these women to see what they were doing as their labor went on. And what we noticed is that women started off walking, moving, doing all these things during labor. And the further along that they got and the closer they got to having their babies, they became more hunched, so more closed into themselves and closer to the ground. So if a woman's standing upright and walking and talking to you, in my mind, we are in an early part of labor. The minute she can stop engaging with the outside world between contractions and has gone into what we call the zone, she's probably moving further deeper into labor land. And then when she can no longer stand up and feels like her body needs to be supported through contractions, she's probably well and truly getting quite close to having her baby and will likely not want to talk to anybody or make eye contact and is very, very close into her own body. So that's a very rough guide of how women act as they progress through labor. And so when you combine that with all the other sounds and sights and people say that labor and birth has a smell, if you're attuned to it, then we can work out what labor's doing. We don't need vaginal exams. We don't need a textbook that tells us how many centimeters per hour. We don't even need research. We can actually just learn from the women. Boyah. That's it. Let's end it on that because that was epic. Get rid of the stages of labour. Bang, they're gone. That's our rule for today. There's going to be a stack of resources in the resource folder, including the work of Rachel Reed from midwifethinking.com, who her thesis was on stages and the abolishment of said stages. So I can recommend her stuff as well. And we will see you in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. See you later. And I'm going to take this opportunity to let you all know about the Launch Yourself into Private Practice Midwifery Mentorship. This is something that I do every October and I have done for the last two years. This is the third year that it's running. So if you are a midwife and you want to move from working in a hospital setting to being in private practice, but it all feels too big, too hard, too complicated, and you don't know where to start, this mentorship was developed to help midwives go from working in hospital to working in a home setting as a privately practicing midwife, you can do a range of things within that. You don't have to go to births. You don't even have to do home births. You can be a private midwife along a huge scope of practice. And I've created a mentorship that goes for an entire year and it's supported by me. There's online content, there's community networking, there's Zoom Zoom sessions, And there's unlimited email access to me. The mentorship opens only in October and only for one week. And then I close down enrollments and you have to wait again till next year if you want to join. I'm just letting you know 
that the launch for this is now October. It's opening. I'm sending out information via email. There's a mailing list. If you want to get on that mailing list, the mentorship mailing list to get information about this mentorship, go to www.melaniethemidwife.com and there's a button on the website that asks for more information about the Launch Yourself into Private Practice Midwifery Mentorship. Click that button, you will be on the mailing list and you'll get all the information you need about the mentorship and how to join and when enrollments open. Hopefully, I will see you in the mentorship and the rebellion can continue. See you later. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>